In his book, In the Grip of Grace, Max Lucado tells the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. If you've never heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, he was a serial killer who murdered and cannibalized 17 people. Uh, this is what Lucado said in his book. You know what disturbs me the most about Jeffrey Dahmer? What disturbs me the most are not his acts, though they are disgusting. Eleven corpses were found in his apartment. He cut off arms. He, he ate body parts. My thesaurus has 204 synonyms for vile, but each falls short of describing a man who kept skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. He redefined the boundary for brutality. The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rung of human conduct and then dropped. But that's not what troubles me the most. Can I tell you what troubles me the most about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his trial, as disturbing as it was with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in court, face frozen, motionless. No sign of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and impassive face? But I don't speak of him because of his trial. There is another reason. Can I tell you what really troubles me about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his punishment. Though his life without parole was hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? A lifetime in jail for every life he took? But that's another matter. And that's not what troubles me the most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? His conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. He repented. He was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry. Said he put his faith in Christ. He was baptized, started life over, began reading Christian books, attending chapel. Sins washed, souls cleansed, past forgiven. That troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal. And I have to admit, deep down inside, in my heart of hearts, that troubles me too. Because there's something inside of me that wants justice. We want people to pay for their sins. At least, at least the people like Jeffrey Dahmer. At least those wicked people of the world. Now I know what some of you are thinking right now. And you're thinking, well Rocky, you've done some bad things. And I have done some bad things. But I've done nothing like Jeffrey Dahmer did. I, I, I've had lustful thoughts. But I've never raped anyone. I've gotten angry with people. But I've never killed and tortured anyone. And I've certainly never cannibalized anyone. I've never eaten human flesh. And I imagine that there is no one in this room who has either. And that's our problem. You see, we look at other people's sins, other people's shortcomings, other people's failures different from we, the way we look at our own. We believe that somehow other people deserve the judgment of God while we somehow deserve the grace of God. But what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 is that those of us who are moral and religious are just as guilty as those people who are living in the moral and spiritual sewer of the world. In chapter 1, Paul describes the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. He tells us that they suppress the truth of God. And, and because they suppress the truth of God, God gives them over to their desires. 
And when he does, they do all manner of evil and wicked things to the point that the Bible says that they are infected from head to toe with sin. Their mind, their hearts, their bodies, their entire lives are infected by sin. But in chapter 2, Paul's message is for the rest of us. Those of us who, who try to do good. Those of us who believe in God. And, and the message is, we are just as bad as the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. And just like them, we are without excuse. Because even though we may not know it, and even though we may not acknowledge it, sin has infected every area of our lives. And I'm afraid that many of us, especially those of us who are here, who are active church members, can be deceived in believing that our moral goodness, our spiritual deeds, our belief in God is somehow going to be good enough to get us to heaven. But they aren't. I want you to know this morning that hell is going to be filled with people who in their minds are morally good. Hell is going to be filled with people who are involved in all types of spiritual good deeds. Hell is going to be filled with people who believe in God, who believe in Jesus. So this morning, I want to give you what Paul gives us in chapter 2. Five signs that you may be spiritually lost. Because I don't want you to die and one day stand before God thinking that you're going to get in heaven when in reality you're going to spend eternity separated from Him. Now here's the first sign. You may be spiritually lost if you are self-righteous. You may be spiritually lost if you are self-righteous. Listen to what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. He says, you may think you can condemn such people, the, the people that he talked about in chapter 1, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same thing? Now, and here's what you need to understand. All of us are born with a self-righteous streak. Look at me. All of us, every one of us, are born with a self-righteous streak. The difference is some of us recognize it and through the grace of God and the power of God we are seeking to put it to death in our life while others of us are always looking outward at other people's faults, other people's failures rather than their own. My goodness, some of you here this morning should have become seismologists because you're incredible at fault finding. You can find the faults of people better than anybody else in the world. And when you find them, you try to let everybody in the world know about them. Whenever you see a person who says, I'm not self-righteous, watch out. Because from my experience, those people who say they aren't self-righteous are the most self-righteous. I've discovered that when we experience the grace of God in our lives, we become more and more aware of our own sinfulness. But when we are self-righteous, 
we become more and more aware of the sinfulness of others. Can I get a witness? I mean, that's the problem. You see, we think we're spiritual because we see everybody else's sins. When the reality is, when we become spiritual, we become more aware of our own sin. Don't ever forget that the people who plotted to kill Jesus, the people who gave Jesus the most grief, were the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day. Now, Paul makes two things very clear in the Greek text here in these first three verses. First of all, he makes it clear that no one has the right to render spiritual judgment on someone else. Listen to me. No one. No one has the right to render spiritual judgment on someone else. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not judge others and you will not be judged. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Later on in Romans, in chapter 14, Paul said this, Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? They are responsible to the Lord, so let him judge whether they are right or wrong. And with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. Now, does that mean that, that we can't correct those who are caught up in sin? Absolutely not. You see, we are given examples and we're given exhortations throughout Scripture to do that. But there is a big difference between judging someone and correcting someone with restoration and redemption in mind. By the way, by the way, when you find someone that you believe is sinning, who are you to go to? Any of you know the Bible? You're to go to who? Them. If, if you believe someone's caught up in sin and you know them at all, what are you supposed to do? You're to go to them. Do you go to the pastor? Do you go to Facebook? Do you go to the person sitting beside you and say, hey, I believe so-and-so is doing you-know-what. Is that what you're supposed to do? No, the Bible says that you go to them. So, listen, whenever you do that, you are guilty. And I got to tell you, I may be venting, but I got to tell you, I believe there's a special place in hell for that self-righteous person who is always condemning and cutting down and criticizing and talking about other people. I got to tell you, I got enough troubles in my own life to deal with to worry about anyone and everyone else. Now, that doesn't mean I don't care what you're doing. I do. I'm your pastor, and I love you, and I want you to live in the fullness of God's grace. But I'm not your spiritual policeman, and you're not mine. The Holy Spirit is. So you who think you are, get off your high horse because you're self-righteous and you may just be lost. The second thing Paul tells us here about, about this is that no one, or excuse me, we are all guilty of the same sins that we judge other people for. Then I know what some of you are saying. Wait a minute, I've never done any of the things that, that I judge other people for. You don't. You say, no, I've never committed adultery. I've never slept with someone I'm not married with. I've never been involved in illicit sex. Have you ever lusted? Come on. Have you ever lusted? I mean, Jesus said if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Come on now. 
You say, I've never murdered anyone. Have you ever gotten angry with anyone? Have you ever slandered them and hurt their reputation without going to them? You're guilty. You're guilty. You say, I've never bent my knee to an idol. Well, have you ever put anything before your commitment and your loyalty and your worship of Jesus Christ? And what about those of you who want other people to be generous? And you see somebody and you look at the house they live in, you look at the car they drive, you look at the places they go, and you go, well, they should be more generous with their resources, not even knowing what they're doing with their resources. When you give your scraps to God and other people, you think God's going to leave you alone? You think you're not guilty? You think you have a relationship with God? Cut it out. I mean, the Bible says there's something wrong deep within you when you have that kind of heart and that kind of spirit before God. You see, you may be lost, religiously lost, if you're self-righteous. Here's the second thing. You may be religiously lost if you're unrepentant. Listen to verse 4 and following. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that many people in the church today have a confused view of salvation. Many of us have this idea that if we believe certain things about Jesus, then we're going to go to heaven. But the Bible teaches us that saving faith is not just knowing facts. Saving faith always involves doing, and saving faith always follows repentance. You see, when I come to the place in my life where I understand why Jesus died on the cross and what Jesus did on that cross, it will lead me to a place of repentance. If you've never repented of your sin, you don't really understand what happened on that cross. You don't understand why Jesus died. Brokenness toward my sin that changes my mind about sin my sin is repentance. Have you ever been broken toward your sin? Has your mind ever changed toward sin? You see, Paul says that God's kindness toward us, God's patience with us should lead us to repent. But instead, we remain stubborn. We remain unrepentant. We remain in our sin. And so what that means is we've cheapened the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. We say, well, Jesus died for my sin. It's okay for me to keep on doing it because it's covered by the blood. You're cheapening the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to set you free from sin. He didn't die on the cross so that you could remain in sin. He died on the cross to set you free. And when we come to the point where we realize what Jesus did, he died in our place. And why he did it, he did it because he loved us and he wanted our lives to be changed. It will lead us to brokenness and to a place where our mind changes and we no longer want to be dominated and controlled by sin. Now notice that last verse. 
Paul said God will give to each person according to what he has done. And that's part of this repentance thing. Don't get confused because the Bible makes it clear that we are saved by faith. In chapter 1 it says from first to last we are saved by faith. But the faith that saves is a faith that changes us. You see, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith always produces a change in our life that originates in our heart. When we've been saved, we have a desire to live a life of holiness and righteousness and purity. And that doesn't mean that we might not stumble. It doesn't mean that we won't falter. It doesn't mean that we won't fail. But it means in our heart of hearts, we long to live the life that God has called us to live. And that's what's guiding and controlling and directing us. If we haven't turned from sin, then we may be religious, but most likely we're lost. Here's the third thing. You may be religiously lost if you're self-seeking. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 7. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. That's just saying that God's going to judge all people the same. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or you're irreligious. It doesn't matter whether you were born in America or you were born in Saudi Arabia. God is going to judge us by the same standard, and that standard is Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying in this text here is that there are two kinds of people. There are those people who are self-seeking, and there are those people who are Savior-seeking. There are those people who are seeking glory and honor for God that results in immortality, and there are those who are seeking the things of the flesh, the things that they desire, the things of this world that result in death. You see, this is speaking of our heart's desires. This is speaking of our motivation. What is it that is motivating us in life? What are we shooting for? What are we running for? What are we striving for? Are we living our life for us? Or are we living our life for the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, some of us call ourselves Christians, but we live like everything revolves around us. We're the sun and, and God and and everything else in the universe are the planets. And it's all about us. Everything is about us. It's about my happiness. It's about my desires. It's about my wants. It's about me, me, me. That's self-seeking. But we know that's wrong. You see, we're not at the center of the universe. God is. And everything revolves around God. That's Savior-seeking. How are you living your life? Are you living your life like you're on the throne and it's all about you? Or are you living your life like God's on the throne and it's all about him? If you're living your life like God's on the throne, then I'm here to tell you that whatever God tells you to do, you're going to seek to do. Whatever he says in his word, you're going to seek to live by it. Wherever he tells you to go, you're going to seek to go. Whatever he tells you to give, you're going to seek to give. You're going to live in obedience because you love him. You're seeking his glory you're seeking his honor. Here's the fourth sign that you may be religiously lost. You're hearers, but you're not doers of the word. We see this in 
verses 12 through 24. Listen to what Paul says. He says, when the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do not have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. And then if you're following along in your Bibles, underline this, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Listening to the law doesn't make you right. It's obeying. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and their thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. Remember last week when we looked at chapter 1 and we saw that God had written in man's heart that he is there? This is what this is talking about. God has revealed himself to everyone, so no one is without excuse. You say, what about that person who has never heard? God has written his word in their hearts, even though they may never have the written word. We're all without excuse. That's why you go into any culture in any society around the world, and there is a moral code. Why? Because God has placed it in the hearts of all men. Last week, we learned that God has given everyone an inward witness in his heart. He's given everyone an outward witness through the heavens, through creation. God reveals himself to everyone. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. Again, if you got your Bibles, underline that. He's going to judge everyone's secret life. You who call yourself Jews or relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him, you know what he wants, you know what is right because you have been taught his law. You're convinced that you're a guide for the blind and, and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think that you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but you steal. You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. By the way, did you see how he ends that section? The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you, because of us. You know what that's saying? It's saying that the people out there in the world, they don't believe in God because of us. They know we come together on Sunday morning and we talk about each other on Sunday afternoon. They see what we post on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. They see the hypocrisy of how we quote these verses and then right under the verses, we slam someone or criticize someone or whatever else. And they go, if, if God doesn't have any more power than that in a person's life, I don't want him. And, and they end up blaspheming the name of God. You see, the Bible's teaching here, it's not about us listening to the word. It's about us obeying the word of God. It's crazy what we do today. It's amazing. You know, on Facebook, we're all friends. I've got 3,000 friends I don't know. And, and what's amazing to me is every single friend on Facebook is a Christian. Every single one of them. I mean, they quote verses. 
and then they cuss out the plumber who did a bad job at their house. It's crazy. And then they post pictures. My word. I'm thinking, whoa. But what you need to understand is there's coming a day, the Bible says, when God will judge everyone's secret life. Not what we post on Facebook. He's going to post our, or judge our secret life. What he knows you do that you're trying to keep from everybody else. You and your little high and mighty, snotty potty self. You think you're all this. You put on your act before people. One day God's going to judge you. He's going to judge you. He knows your secret stash. He knows your expenditures. He knows your hidden pleasures. Nothing is hidden from God. He knows those private messages. He knows those little conversations behind closed doors when you say, now don't tell anyone. Have you ever received a, a word like that? Have you ever wondered, by the way, why anyone would tell you something and then say, don't tell anyone? because they're sinful every secret thing will be revealed and God will judge it all you see the religious are all about covering up and keeping hidden the redeemed are all about being forgiven confessing their sins and then notice what he says he says you are convinced you can instruct the ignorant you are proud that you know the law but you break it You're so quick to judge other people, but you're not even doing what you do. Here's what I've discovered. We don't, we, we don't live up to our own standard, much less God's standard. So quit judging everybody else. Focus on yourself. Here's the fifth thing. You may be religiously lost if you rely on religious rituals. Romans chapter 2 verse 25 says this, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than uncircumcised Gentiles. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. Well, you're not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Oh, that's what the religious do. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Change that, that word circumcision to baptism there. Because these were Jews who were followers of Jesus and, and they believed because of their Jewish heritage, they believed because they had been circumcised, they had gone through this religious ritual that these things guaranteed them a place in God's kingdom. But Paul said, you need to understand that an uncircumcised Gentile who obeys the truth is going to be in heaven when you're not going to be in heaven. In other words, baptism won't save you. There are going to be people in heaven who have never been baptized because baptism doesn't save. Baptism is an act that shows our faith. There's no saving power in, in baptism. Some of us have this idea 
that if we're baptized, then we're guaranteed a place in heaven. And so we want our kids to be baptized as early as possible. Four-year-old, hey, you want to give Jesus your life? Yeah. I mean, what four-year-old who has ever been to Sunday school isn't going to love Jesus? Right? Amen? I mean, what's not to love about Jesus? Jesus is a pretty lovable guy. But I'm here to tell you that I don't know a four-year-old who has been convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin. At four years old, I, I was probably still struggling with using the potty right. I'm just being honest. I mean, maybe you were a child prodigy. I, 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 you see, being dunked in the water isn't going to get you to heaven. It's a change of heart. It's a relationship with God that is produced by the Spirit of God. And so the question is, has your heart been changed by the Spirit of God? The, the Bible speaks about this religious man. He was a moral man, a good man. His name's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wasn't like the other Pharisees that we read about in the Bible. These Pharisees that were always trying to condemn Jesus and trip Jesus up. The Pharisees that... that, that plotted to kill Jesus. Nicodemus wasn't a part of them. He had nothing to do with their plot. Nicodemus was a genuinely good man who was seeking after God. But he knew that something was wrong. He knew that something was missing. He knew in spite of all of his moral goodness, he knew in spite of all of his religious acts, he knew in spite of all of his knowledge of Scripture, he was missing something. And so Nicodemus came to Jesus one night and before Nicodemus could ever really even talk, Jesus said this, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Jesus was never one to, to beat around the bush. I mean, he always got to the point, didn't he? he? He knew why Nicodemus was coming. Nicodemus was missing something. He was empty inside. And so Jesus went straight to the point. If, you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand. He said, how can a man, a grown man, enter his mother's womb again and be born a second time? And Jesus basically said, you don't understand. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit is physical birth. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. God's spirit changes us. And it's like we are born brand new. You see, that's salvation. Salvation is when God's Spirit touches your heart and makes you new. Hear me. You can walk down this aisle 50 times with tears in your eyes and never be saved. You can be baptized 10 times and never be saved. You can teach a Sunday school class, a life group, a Bible study. You can sing on stage. You can preach where I'm preaching and never be saved. The only way you can be saved is when God's Spirit comes into our heart and makes us new. And i got to tell you, that's crazy stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's crazy. I mean, that's supernatural. That's not of this world, is it? I mean, it's not like, okay, I prayed this prayer and I'm going to heaven. No, God's Spirit comes into our life, makes us new, and we're born again. And that's what Paul says right here. He said, our heart is changed through the power of the Spirit. And so my question for you this morning is, has your heart been changed? Because if it hasn't, 
You may be religious. You may be good. Or you may just flat out be a hypocrite. But I can tell you what, you're lost. If your heart hasn't been changed, you're lost. When you stand before God, He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And that would be a terrible thing. Bow your head with me. Your head bowed with your eyes closed. I want to ask you that question again. Has your heart been changed? I want to go through these things that Paul gave us real quick. When you look at your life, do you say like Paul, I am the worst sinner of all? Or when you look at your life, do you say, I'm not as bad as a lot of people? How do you look at your life? Second, have you turned from sin desiring a holy life? Or are you holding on to certain sins, believing that the goodness and the grace of God is going to allow you into heaven even though you're continuing in sin. Third, do you long for the things of God? Or are you self-seeking? Do you long for the things of this world? Fourth, do you know the word? But deep down inside you know you're not living by the word? And then finally, are you clinging to some type of religious ritual, baptism, church membership, something like that to save you and get you into heaven rather than recognizing that it's only through a change of heart produced by the Spirit of God that you can be saved? If you're here today and you know you need Jesus, you know that your heart has never been changed, and you're ready for Jesus to do what only he can do, change your heart, then I want to invite you right now to humble yourself before God and pray this prayer to him right now. And if that's where you're at, you're saying, I'm tired of playing games, tired of putting on an act, tired of going through the motions, I want Jesus to change my heart. If that's where you're at, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I humbly come before you this morning asking you to forgive my sins. I am such a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I've lived life my way. I am so sorry. I don't want to be controlled by sin anymore, Jesus. Jesus, I know you love me. I know you came to this earth, you died on a cross, you rose from the grave so that my sins could be forgiven. Jesus, I know you died in my place. And today, I'm trusting you alone to save me. And I'm giving you my life. I'm yours. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change my heart. Change my mind. Make me new. 
Jesus, from this point on in my life, I want to live for you. Jesus, thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.